Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's quite a morbid subject, death. I think that's quite a fair thing to say, especially in the Western society. So you might want to know why I was thinking about doing a podcast about death. It's no personal reason in the sense of I haven't lost anyone particularly close to me. But I really, we talk about the meaning of life a lot in our society. We talk about life having meaning and purpose. But what we don't tend to realise is that death is that that final curtain, so to speak. Um, and traditionally, I mean, 100, 150 years ago, they would talk about having a good death. What that means is a different, means different things to different people. But so I, I, I wanted to know what the meaning of death is, because I wondered whether that would add meaning to our life. So that's kind of my big philosophical question. This is episode five of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy. Find out more on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Docio podcast with myself, Edmund Conroy on this, the first of two episodes on the subject of the meaning of death and dying, I am speaking with Professor Michael Cholby on the subject of death and dying. Uh, We will also be covering suicide, assisted dying, immortality, and a few other subjects besides. Thank you for joining me. Professor Cholby is currently the Chair, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh and has previously been Professor of Philosophy at California State Polytechnic University and Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Brooklyn College. He is the founder of the International Association for the Philosophy of Death and Dying. He sits on the editorial board of the Journal of Applied Philosophy, the Board of Advisors for the academic journal Social Theory and Practice. He is Area Editor of Ethics for the academic journal Ergo and on the International Board of Advisors for the prestigious journal of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. He is a former editor of the journal Teaching Philosophy and holds multiple roles within the American Philosophical Association. You can read more from Professor Cholby on his website, michael.cholby.com, on his University of Edinburgh profile, as well as finding out more information on the docio.edconroy.co.uk website. So, without further ado, please welcome my guest, Professor Michael Cholby, Chair of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, as we discuss the meaning of death and dying. So, uh, good morning. Thank you for um, <laughs> agreeing to be interviewed for a student podcast. I don't know how often you get requests for student podcasts, but I, I have noticed you, you've done quite a few podcasts. You're not new to podcasting as such. Uh, I'm not a novice, I guess, but I wouldn't get classify myself as an expert. So there's many opportunities I can get to uh, home my uh, podcasting chops. I welcome it. So, <laughs> okay. I've been looking through some of your work. I haven't managed to read it all. Uh, it turns out my university doesn't have access to all of your books or actually, I think any of your books, which I was a bit disappointed oh. about. Um, it does have a- access to your articles and obviously there's Google Scholar. Um, so I was able to use some of that. I think I used Microsoft Academia as well. And I, I read a few of your articles. 
Um, so just to say, I did do some homework. Um, <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> that, yeah. You're listening to episode five of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. The question to start with is, could you define death for us? And the reason I ask that oh, gosh. is we don't actually have a medically agreed on definition of death, do we? Is it when the heart stops? Is it when the brain pattern stops? There's this, yes, we have a practical one, which is generally the heart stopping and full body function ceasing. But there is and has been that debate in the medical sphere. So I wondered whether there was a philosophical debate of what is death in that sense. Well, to begin, I think one of the things that we want to allow for is that a definition of death has to encompass both the belief that death is the cessation of your existence and the belief that death is not the cessation of your existence, but rather a transition in it. So, as you know, there are uh, many people in the world, in fact, I think if the sociological evidence is to be trusted, the anthropological evidence is to be trusted, the majority of the people in the world uh, believe that we survive death in some form, right? Believe in an afterlife. So death can't be defined, I think, as the cessation of our existence, lest you just beg the question against those who believe in an afterlife, believe in immortality or something like that. So I think that there's a kind of uncontroversial definition. It's the cessation of our biological existence. The issues that you were mentioning about you know, how exactly we go about diagnosing death in medical contexts, I don't really see those as disputes about the definition of death. I think they're disputes about the evidence, right? What counts as evidence for a person's being dead, right? In particular, what counts as decisive evidence of a person's being dead. I would say over the past two generations or thereabouts, since the 1960s or 1970s, the general trend has been that societies have increasingly adopted medical criteria for death that make reference to the brain, right? So in the United States, starting in the 1970s, there was a movement to render uniform, right, the different standards of death, different medical standards of death across the different states. And the result of this was a uniform legal definition that said that you are dead just in case your entire brain, your whole brain, has permanently ceased to function. And this superseded the, I guess, sort of more lay understandings of, of the criteria for death, making reference to the cessation of the beating of the heart or respiration, breathing. And here in the UK, right, there's no sort of legally defined criterion for death, but the prevailing medical standard is something like a brain-based standard. But I think if we're just trying to define death, the cessation of our biological existence is good enough. I think the tricky questions that you're raising about, you know, the different standards of death are in some ways... Again, not so much disputes about how to define death, but how to understand what counts as evidence, right, of death, yeah. or if you prefer, alternatively, the presence of life. That's useful. I think I think that that's probably how most people would think of death without necessarily thinking in those mm -hmm. terms, if that makes sense. I don't think we generally, personal perspective, and I'm not sure we, we would generally talk about the medical evidence. We would we would just say they passed on, they died, they. Do you know what I mean? We would, we would orientate around their existence rather than around their bodily function. And I think that's true, isn't it? We, we talk about existence perhaps more so, but you're talking about the ceasing of our bodily function being the kind of death and then 
after that is the question, I guess, is it? Well, there's a difference between a definition, right, and a criterion, right? So not to get sort of pedantically philosophical, right? But suppose that I tell you that gold, right, is any substance that has an atomic number 42, okay? That's a great definition. It's not a very good criterion, right? Because if I'm out in the world and I happen to find a shiny bit of rock in a stream, I don't have at my disposal any equipment, right, to tell me whether the substance I'm looking at has atomic number 42. So I might have to use a criterion, right? I might have to use a set of standards, a set of rules to determine if this is gold, even though I'm not using the definition. So that's to say that definitions sometimes underdetermine criteria, right? So what we're looking for in the medical context, I think, is a criterion, right? A standard for yeah. declaring someone dead, right? Which is, I think, you know, really not an issue where we're disputing the definition, right? We're disputing in some sense, again, what is our evidence, right, for applying, right, this term, this predicate dead to a, to a human being. But I think there is broad consensus, as you say, it's very commonsensical to say that death is the cessation of our biological existence. How that maps on to, you know, these interesting disputes about the criteria for death is, is complicated. But, you know, the, the, the question of, of how to or what criteria to use, right, has some extent been the byproduct of technological developments, right, social developments related to medical technology. So, you know, up until the 1950s, the cardiopulmonary standard, right, that a person is dead on the condition that their respiration and heartbeat have uh, permanently ceased was perfectly workable. But then in the 1950s, we started to develop and, and use medical technologies, in particular artificial respiration, right, that sort of complicates that, right? Is the person on an artificial respirator, are they dead? Well, by the standard of the cardiopulmonary uh, uh, criterion, the answer is no, right? After all, they, they're breathing, right, with the aid of a machine. But that's in some sense how we got to the, the debates that took place in the 1960s and 70s is by people wondering, hmm, you know, we now have this kind of phenomenon, right, that sort of sits in a nether region, I think many people yeah. would have said at the time, between someone's being indisputably uncontroversially dead and their being indisputably uncontroversially alive. You're listening to episode five of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Now that we've kind of got our definition of death, our understanding of it, I want to talk about viewpoints, how we view death, um, which is quite an interesting little side topic, I think. But I think it will open up for us. I want to start with a reference to somebody who isn't yourself, so I do apologise for that. I should just be quoting from you, shouldn't I? <laughs> Medical anthropologist Joan mm-hmm. Halifax. I don't know whether you've heard of her. She says that many Americans yeah. see death as... Sorry, was that a yes or no? <laughs> Definitely heard of her, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> so she says that many Americans see death as a failure. I ask, because you are an American, is that a true assessment of the American... <laughs> mentality towards death and would you say that that's also a british mentality or western mentality and i guess what would be a better way for us to view death than as a failure well is it a failure i suppose that the obvious answer to that question is it can't be right because a failure would suggest an ability to succeed in light of a certain set of facts but since we happen to know 
that every human being that has ever existed, and so far as we know, every human being that probably ever will exist is mortal. Death can't be a failure, right? Any more than, you know, being three-dimensional is a failure or something like that, right? It's baked into our natures to, to die. So I think it's fair to say that's a mistake. Is it a common view? Well, I mean, I guess what I would say is that I, I appreciate Halifax's point. I think she's gesturing at the idea that there is a common attitude. I'm not sure I would go so far as to say it's the majority, that death represents a necessarily bad-making feature, right, of, of our existence, right? Whereas I think, you know, a, a thoughtful uh, reflection upon uh, death and mortality would suggest to us that sometimes, right, death is bad for the person who suffers it, but not always. There can be persons for whom death might be uh, advantageous, maybe we'd even say a blessing, but it's not ultimately a sort of failure of, of a person that they are mortal. Of course, it could be the case that the circumstances of their death represent a certain sort of failure. A person who, you know, packs his parachute incorrectly and as a consequence of that pulls the cord that doesn't work, I suppose has failed. <laughs> but I'm not right. sure I would say that that's even there. That's even there. The death is not the failure. It's more that the person's um, imprudence is the failure. I do think that what Halifax is pointing at is, you know, there definitely are cultures that are, I think some anthropologists would say death denying, right, or death anxious, right? And I certainly think there's abundance of anthropological and sociological evidence to support the idea that U.S. culture and perhaps English-speaking cultures throughout the world are more anxious about, about death than others are. Part of that, I suppose, is that, you know, those cultures were among the first to be able to implement different kinds of uh, medical technologies and treatments that prolong life, right, to such an impressive degree that, you know, people then begin to think, well, if we can prolong life to such an impressive degree, doesn't that just mean that, you know, death represents some sort of, you know, failure on the part of either ourselves or our institutions. But again, you know, given our mortality, it's hard to see death as a failure. You're listening to episode five of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So I, I, I think you've alluded to something that I think is quite important. Again, the concept of death as a failure, but also medical advancements. And I think it ties into the language, of, uh, ties into the discussion about the language we use around death. So specifically, we, we might use the phrase as someone losing their battle to cancer or someone lost their fight against a tumour. This language, this warfare language has come under a lot of criticism recently. Is there better language we should be using? Does, does that language hinder our orientation and our thinking around death? And should we be looking to reorientate our perspectives? Well, the language of our being at war with death or our, our fighting death, I think does encourage us to think of our relationship to death in a necessarily antagonistic way. And as I was saying a couple of minutes ago, not every instance of death represents any kind of failure on our part. Not all dying is bad. Not all death is necessarily bad. So I think it can distort, right, our relationship to death in ways that are probably not very healthy. Now, as to what we say or what we might say in lieu, right, of talking about fighting death or being at war with death, well, sometimes I think it does make sense for people to want to fight it. I mean, certainly, you know, um, you know, sometimes medical treatments do work. Sometimes people, you know, have to live, you know, large portions of their lives if they have a chronic illness or a congenital illness doing things to, you know, keep the threat of mortality at bay. So I don't think it's always the case that we should forego that language. 
But I do think that a more conciliatory vocabulary, you know, can sometimes be appropriate. Sometimes, you know, I hear people say that we need to have language that, you know, suggests that we accept death. Well, I don't know, right? You know, death may not be good for us, even though it may be wise for us to stop fighting with it, too. Right. And, you know, what language we use then in replacement of this sort of combat language, this militaristic language, uh, I think it will vary from person to person. Right. Sometimes I think the language of, of accepting might make sense. I think sometimes, you know, the language of making peace with death is a good way of, of thinking about our situation. Or, you know, I like to tell students that, you know, we have to live with our mortality. We're unique, I think, among creatures in, in knowing about our mortality. And so, you know, rather than living in death's shadow, we have to live in the light of it. Right. We have to you know, live in a way that is conscious of our mortality rather than trying to postpone right indefinitely. Right. Our engagement with our mortality. I mean, I suppose one of the things I have have as one of my objectives as as an educator is to try to help people not postpone. Right. That confrontation or that that reconciliation with their own mortality, maybe until it's it's too late or, you know, until you know, the situation is staring them in the face. You're listening to episode five of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So I guess kind of to round off this this first kind of discussion on, on death itself, I guess the question is, as a philosopher, you'll have looked at many different cultures, many different philosophies of death. And I guess the question is, what do we get right in the West? And what do we get wrong in the West? And what could we borrow from other cultures of a less, you know, less Western perspective that would perhaps inform and help us in our appreciation, I guess, of death? Hmm. Yeah, I guess I find the question somewhat difficult to answer because what I think we are seeing in Western cultures is much more pluralism, right, with respect yeah. to attitudes about death and mortality than we saw in the past. Uh, yeah. If you and I were having this conversation 50 years ago, it wouldn't, of course, be a podcast. We'd probably be on the radio, I guess. But if we're having this conversation 50 years ago, the question, I think, would be a little bit more manageable. Because I think, you know, we have seen over the past couple of generations definite broader changes in, in worldview in Western cultures that have changed a lot of people's attitudes toward death. So I suppose the biggest one, right, is the slow but noticeable decline in the prevalence of of Christian belief, right? You know, from the standpoint of of Christian belief, death is a transition to the uh, state of our existence that's arguably more important than the one that we're presently in, right? This one is just a sort of prelude, right, to the one that really counts, right? And so, you know, on that mindset, right? Dying is a transition. And for those who are who are left behind, so to speak, you know, their experience of other people's dying is oriented or was oriented toward preparing that dying person for what's to come. Nowadays, we tend to think that, you know, the death of someone is is important for those who survive because of their relationships with the deceased and so on. I do think one thing that you see in, in certain non-Western cultures, right, is um, a greater appreciation of the fact that death is inevitable. And so we should not view it as a, again, sort of blot, right, against our existence, but rather as something that shapes and structures our existence. Um, It's not just an end, right? In some sense, it's a kind of overarching thematic feature of human life, I think, in in many non-Western cultures. I think that's a lesson that that Western thinkers and and residents of, of industrialized Western countries could probably take to heart. You're listening to episode five of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast.
you've alluded to, and this kind of helps move us on a little bit, a large part of your research I've noticed has covered grief. And I think that fits in quite nicely there. Could you, could you explain a little bit about what we're calling grief? What, what is grief? And how that is, in, is that important to our identity as humans, would you have said? Well, indeed, I would say it's very important to our identity as humans. I think that the best way to understand grief philosophically is to say that grief is our response to the death of a person in whom we have invested our own identity, right? In whom we've, in some sense, invested our hopes, invested our futures, around whom we have, in some sense, built our habits and practices and, and goals for life. That doesn't have to be someone we know either. It, I mean, like, I remember the Michael Jackson death and all of the stuff surrounding that. So it doesn't have to be someone we actually personally know, does it? It doesn't require, I think, any kind of intimacy necessarily with them. And it can be asymmetrical, right? You know, you might grieve Michael Jackson's death, even if Michael Jackson wouldn't have grieved yours, right? So I think that we grieve people, again, in whom we've invested our self-conception or invested our identities. But of course, we can invest our identities in aspects of people that don't require us to have intimate knowledge of them, right? So, you know, when people grieve the death of a political leader that they admire, they don't necessarily know that person with the intimacy or familiarity that, say, their family does, but they have nevertheless perhaps you know, come to admire the person. They might have invested certain of their hopes for their community in that person, you know, in their policies. Or if it's a, if it's a, say, a performing artist, maybe this is someone that you have modeled your own, you know, artistic work on. So I think that what happens when we grieve is that we undergo, to varying degrees, a kind of crisis in our relationship with someone. Right? This person is someone in whom we've invested our identities, and when they die, that investment can't continue in quite the same way. Right? You can't continue to look to, you know, someone as an artistic role model or to someone as a political leader or, you know, in more intimate contexts, you know, your spouse as a partner or your sibling as, you know, a companion. And so we have to adapt, right, to the new relationship possibilities that their death makes possible. You're listening to episode five of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Clearly then, it is highly tied to our identity. And it doesn't have to be the whole of our identity, does it? Though I, I think for a lot of people, or, or it seems that way, when you look at celebrity death, and I think that's a, a, it's a that's an interesting field in itself, I suppose, um, the, the grief that fans around celebrity deaths have versus the grief that you might have personally with someone you are more intimately involved with. But I, I wonder whether it's not necessarily, how does, how, I guess the question is cultural identity tying into that. Um, and we think of, uh, I want to be careful here because I'm not intimate with the details of uh, the crying that happened at the death of the former North Korean leader um, although I have recently on social media seen comparisons with our own UK loss uh, in Prince Philip, seen some comparisons there, and I don't want to go into that area. But one can feel a sense of grief for others. Is, is that correct, would you have said? Help me understand when you say you can feel a sense of grief for others, that is to say, you can experience grief at one remove, that is to say, you can feel grief because others are? So what you're proposing? Or? I, I, I suppose so, yes. So I, I personally have no identity involvement in Prince Philip, but I can feel sadness for his wife, the Queen, his children, his grandchildren. And I can feel 
a sense of national grief, I suppose, that happens because of things like that, whilst not feeling particularly torn up in the way that perhaps if my wife died or my parents or my children mm -hmm. or my siblings. Is that is that a form of grief or is that just empathy, would you have said? I think you put your finger on it. I don't actually think it's grief. I think one of the things that we need to, to figure out, right, if we're trying to understand grief philosophically, is why it is that grief is a selective response, right? I mean, you know, thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people will die today. I probably won't grieve any of them, right? <laughs> and, and probably neither will you. So grief is not something that's prompt, prompted, I think, just by any death. Right. Again, I think we need to have our own identities invested in that person in some way, whether it's as partner or sibling or a parent or, you know, uh, you know, a role model, whomever. We need to have some investment of our own identity in that person in order for their death to prompt grief. I think we can recognize grief in others and we can empathize with them and we can see and appreciate perhaps why they right, are undergoing grief even though at the same time, we can also appreciate why we're not, right? As you were saying in the case of Prince Philip, there are individuals here in the UK who in some sense have invested their identity in, in someone like him, right? You know, a person who sort of reaches into the past and represents, I suppose, a kind of patriarch, but at the same time, you know, someone who had to, I suppose, take a, a backseat to his more powerful spouse. So it's people who sort of identify, you know, with him and, and the era that he represents or the that he represents, but you don't have to or don't. And you can nevertheless, I think, you know, understand their own reactions, but you're not grieving, right? Mm. And that's just to say, right, that we don't grieve everyone and not everything that we feel, right, in response to the death of another is itself grief. You're listening to episode five of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. I did get some questions from friends that they were asked to me orally and I wrote down quick notes at the time so I've expanded their questions which is a bit cheeky but I hope they won't mind so a friend of mine called Pauline she lives in Clackmannanshire she asked me about the research of the psychologist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross which I'm sure <laughs> is a name particularly familiar to you she asked a specific question I've looked a bit more into Kubler-Ross and went Right, there's about seven questions here, but I, I, I've got, I've got, I think, three questions for you. So I'll start with the first one, uh, which is more generally, um, she's most famous, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, for her creation of the framework of the stages of grief, the five stages of grief, which I don't think she even intended to be used as a one, two, three, four, five metric, uh, but rather a framework. We all go through them in different orders when bereavement occurs. Could you just explain a little bit about this model and how it fits into philosophy and the academic discussions today around grief? Well, I think Elizabeth Kubler-Ross has been both a beneficiary of good fortune and the victim of ill fortune. She was a beneficiary of good fortune in the sense that her work emerged in the mid to late 1960s at a time when I think sort of consciousness around death and mortality was growing. And so her work on uh, grief and bereavement found fertile ground and a lot of popular interest. I think she suffered ill fortune because in some ways her work has been repurposed, I, I suppose you could even say distorted a bit by uh, sort of subsequent thinkers and, and other you know, people within the mental health profession. Kubler-Ross's uh, five-stage model, right, that one grieves through a process of denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, was first of all not really even developed as an account of grieving 
other people's deaths, right? It was developed based on our observations of dying people and their attitudes toward their own deaths. It then sort of migrated into being an account of how we react to other people's deaths, okay? And I think what subsequent research by psychologists and others have shown is that Kubler-Ross was partially correct. In what sense was she correct? Well, a good bit of the research, much of it conducted at Yale University by um, Holly Pridgerson and her team, has found that you know, grief does have emotional stages to it, right? People undergo, you know, certainly sadness, but also in many cases, other emotions, anxiety, anger, guilt, joy, puzzlement, confusion, disorientation. So grief is not sort of an emotion. It sort of looks like an emotional process. What she got wrong was the details of that process. Many of us don't go through those five stages, or if we do go through them, we don't go through them in that order. For most of us, kind of unsurprisingly, acceptance is the first stage, right? In order to sort of get to grief, you sort of have to accept that the person has has died. So we don't go through those five stages, or we don't go through them in in that order, or we undergo other emotions that aren't contained in in that set of five. So I think she had an insight about the sort of complex emotional texture of grief that was right. It's just that the details don't seem faithful to how most people seem to undergo uh, grief and bereavement. You mentioned that obviously she would talk about how people accept their own death. I think that's important because she she was working at that time in the hospice, in the emerging hospice sector, was she not? That would be. Well, she was a nursing. Yeah, she was a nursing educator. Right. And so, you know, her work didn't come out of sort of a social scientific kind of methodology. It was, I suppose we would kind of say, you know, subjective, but not in a bad way, right? It was based on sort of her observations and interactions with with patients. Um, And of course, one can learn much from that. But it was never, I think, even meant even by by Kubler-Ross herself to be a systematic or exact theory, right, of how people grieve. But it found fertile ground. And, you know, there's it's one of those things where I would say there was enough truth in it, right, that, you know, it sort of took off, right, and, and sort yeah. of exploded in popularity. And, of course, it's the one thing about, about grief that, that people often, often know, though, of course, they can't really know it because, you know, it's, it's really not too faithful to most people's experience. So, again, staying with Kubler-Ross. Now, I feel bad because this is her end of life was not particularly pleasant for her. Um, mm-hmm. from my reading of it. Now, earlier she had said that euthanasia, so uh, assisted dying, or, or mm-hmm. you know, prevents people from completing their unfinished business. And obviously, ironically, um, she ended up being kind of close to paraplegic, multiple factors, mainly strokes, I gather, and ended up wishing to determine the time of her own death, what is a very sad end of life. But I guess the question is, was her original contention helpful or unhelpful to the discussion on assisted dying, her contention that euthanasia prevents people from completing their unfinished business? Well, it may prevent some people from doing so, but, you know, for others, it seems to me that what we know about assisted dying as it's been practiced in, you know, the Netherlands, Belgium, you know, a number of parts of the United States now, now uh, lawful in many parts of Canada, Australia, and so on, is that most of the people who undertake it don't do it in haste, right? Those who undertake medically assisted dying, I would describe them as death conscientious, right? Right. They are people who want to exert some control, exert some autonomy over their own demise, 
And not surprisingly, they also tend to also want to exert some control over, you know, sort of the management of the rest of their lives as, as they uh, confront the prospect of their own death. That, that is to say, the people who seek out assisted dying are the kinds of people who will, you know, try to address and mend their relationships with others. You know, almost always they have, you know, wills and testaments, right? These are people who are, I think, view themselves as seizing control. Right of their own mortality, even in the face of perhaps an illness that you know they didn't choose and can't control. So I would actually, I guess, you know, push back or contest uh, Kubler Ross's original view. Yes, of course, euthanasia, if done you know, on a whim or uh, you know without forethought or you know something like that, that might keep people from you know uh, uh, not completing the business, the earthly business that they need to complete. But it seems to me that what we know about people who actually seek it is that, that the opposite is true, right? They're the kinds of people who will you know, address their affairs, tidy up their, their worldly uh, concerns before their lives end. And her own story, I think, is telling, right? Because it does seem to me that it's difficult, right, I think, to get into the mindset of, of someone with you know, a serious uh, terminal illness, right? And I think a good bit of opposition to the legalization of assisted dying sometimes comes from lack of imagination, Right, about what it might be like to be in that situation and, and to perhaps underestimate the appeal of, of hastening one's death in that situation. Okay, so just finally, before we move on from Kubler-Ross, uh, this is a bit of a left-field question. Um, latter half of her life, uh, she devoted a lot of time to researching near-death experiences or NDEs and, uh, I guess, religious claims of resurrection. The question that was originally asked to me by Pauline was, do NDEs feature in your research? Um, and I guess philosophically, perhaps, how do we talk about near-death experiences, which many people claim to have had? Are they compatible with our, our understanding scientifically and philosophically? And then how do we philosophically view the potential of the miraculous, miraculous resurrections as part of that? It's a big question. <laughs> it does not figure very much in my research, but let me punt. There was a very fine book published, I want to say about five years ago now, by John Martin Fisher and Benjamin Mitchell Yellen. I think it's simply called Near-Death Experience. But Fisher and Mitchell Yellen are philosophers, and they are interested in exactly the sorts of issues that your questioner was raising there, about what near-death experiences tell us about death, if anything, uh, what they say about our attitudes toward toward death and, and, and mortality. And it's a very good book, very informative book. I did have the privilege of doing a review of the book for the Los Angeles Review of Books several years back, and, and your questioner could take a look at what I think about that. But I think that you know, their own view, which is that you know, near-death experiences don't, for example, prove the existence of the afterlife or anything like that, seems to me to be correct. I actually think there's some sense more interesting ethically, uh, in the sense that you know, what people report from near-death experiences is a kind of very interesting ethical, I don't know, outlook or mindset, right, as they're, as they're dying, sort of they feel both distinct and at peace, but also sort of in harmony with everything else. And it certainly sounds like it's a remarkable moment to be in. And it has proven, right, interestingly, in many people's lives, you know, ethically transformative, right? There are cases of, of individuals, you know, undergoing these near-death experiences, and then sort of embarking on new ways of life, right? You know, people working in I don't know, you know, as, as, as lawyers or bankers or something, you know, beginning to work for charities or something like that, you know. So they seem to me, in some ways, to me, the interest is more ethical than, than metaphysical. But the Fisher and Mitchell Yellen book is excellent, and, and I recommend it. Okay, so moving on. 
You're listening to episode 5 of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. I mean, there are lots of questions, but we are running out of time. So I do have a final set of questions, very quick fire. They're meant to be fun. They're based on the questionnaire posed by James Lipton in Inside the Axter's Studio. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, uh, Which in turn is based on the French TV host Bernard Pivot's questionnaire from Apostrophes, which in turn is based on Marcel Proust's questionnaire. Apparently, that's that's the origins of it all. But firstly, uh, just quick fire, fun, nothing serious. And what is your least favorite word? Pessimism is not a word that I like. What makes you happiest? Learning. What is your favorite curse word? My favorite curse word. I find that I don't use words. I just use sounds. I just say, uh. And what profession would you not like to do? Most of them. I think it's a real curse of human existence that a lot of professions are not very satisfying. I'd have a real tough time, I think, with mental health because I just think like dealing with really hard, complicated problems while maintaining like professional detachment or disinterest, it sounds just really, really challenging to me. What sound or noise do you love? Uh, I really like listening to children interact. You know, uh, you know, it's it's been very nice as as children have been going back to school. I get to hear some of them walking about in the neighborhood. It's it's uh, sort of human bird song, I think, you know. You're listening to episode five of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. This was episode five of the Docio podcast, hosted by Edmund Conroy, interviewing Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast or on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. And please don't forget to subscribe using your favourite podcast listening platform. And that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Docio podcast with myself, Edmund Conroy, and my guest, Professor Michael Cholby. Join me for the final episode of the series when I will be continuing that conversation with Professor Michael Cholby. Until then, have a great day. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye for now. Provided by freepd.com under a Creative Commons license zero. Additional voiceover work by Hannah Conroy. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021. The Docio Podcast. If you would like to support the Docio podcast, then please visit our website shop to purchase merchandise. 
or visit patreon.com forward slash docio to financially subscribe to the podcast. Your contribution alone could help the podcast make many more episodes.